All right, if you will turn in a copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 82. Uh, 82. This morning we're uh, looking at a one-off. Um, uh, it's, not, it's not in a series. <laughs> it's a fantastic text. Next week, uh, P.J. McClung will be beginning our uh, Advent series. We'll be looking at Luke's uh, version of the birth of Christ, the birth narrative. So he'll be beginning next week. So thankful for you, brother. Uh, and then, Lord willing, on the other side of December, we're heading to Genesis. We're going to do Genesis 1 through 11. We've looked at 12 through 24-ish uh, with the life of Abraham. And so we're going to be looking at what's called the proto-history uh, true history of 1 through 11 of how God created the world, um, the expansion of sin into the world, uh, uh, Noah's flood, and God's preservation of his family. Uh, so that's kind of where we're heading. So maybe between now and then, start reading uh, Genesis. It's just phenomenal. You know, it can, be, it can be said that if we don't understand Genesis, we can't understand the rest of the Bible. That's how fundamental uh, Genesis is to God's story. But today, we're in Exodus 24, page 82, if you'll stand as you're able for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Then he, the Lord, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, through this time you would make us more thankful for your word. That you would grow us uh, in your grace 
nourish our faith, and anoint us with the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Have you looked at your uh, wedding photos recently? Uh, so, uh, looking at my wedding photos, I, I just look so young. And perhaps in some of your wedding photos, you look even younger. Uh, I can't believe anybody let me get married. I, I look so young, and I was so young. I was 23. Now, you know, the fact that, that I think that's young says a lot about the shift in our culture. You know, in 1960, do you know what the average age of marriage was? It was 20. Uh, in fact, if you go much further back than that, it was probably a lot younger. You graduated high school, you got married. Do you know what the average age for marriage is now? Uh, for women, it is 27.6 years of age. And for men, it's almost 30. That's actually changing the demographics of Western society. Uh, the longer you wait, the fewer children you have. Uh, we've actually, as a country, now we're below the, uh, the fertility rate. It's 2.1 is what you have to have in order to, re, you know, to, to keep society going. We're under that now. The only thing that keeps America going is actually immigration. Um, that's why we're continuing to grow. Why is that, though? Why, why do people wait so much longer to get married? And I think a lot of it has to come, has, has to come from a, a, a fear of commitment, of locking yourself in, of not having options. I'm really glad that's not how God works. God's not afraid of commitment. In fact, God's not afraid of commitment. He has committed himself to a bunch of scoundrels, to you and me. God's not afraid of commitment knowing that we're going to run and stumble and fall and mess up. He's not afraid of commitment. He has committed himself to his people. He has committed himself to you. And we know that first and foremost because he has given to us his son. Now, his commitment to his people is not just a New Testament thing. It goes all the way back to the very beginning, to Adam and Eve. He was committed to Adam and Eve. We know that because he could have just wiped them off the face of the earth and been done with it all. But instead, after the fall, he gives them the promise of the Messiah. There will, become, there will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And all of Scripture up until Christ's coming is weaving history together, preparing God's people and the world for the coming of the Messiah. God is committed to His people, and we see that in spades in this text. Where very publicly, the Lord commits Himself to His people, Israel, and by extension, to us. So where are we in Exodus? Perhaps it's been a while since you've read the book of Exodus. That's phenomenal. I love this book. It's so exciting to see what God does uh, to free His people out of, out of Egypt. You'll remember there are about 2 to 3 million uh, um, Israelites, Hebrews, in slavery in Egypt. Let's put that into context. That's like half of the population of our state. That's a lot of people. To free out of bondage. All of a sudden, Pharaoh doesn't have a free labor force anymore. He frees his people out of Egypt by many great signs and wonders. And he leads them uh, to Mount Sinai, where he's going to enter into what's called the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of Moses. 
Mosaic Covenant with His people and form them into the nation of Israel. And that, that happens here, by the way. This is what happens in this text. God is entering into covenant with His people. It's like they are signing a treaty. And guess who is the one who initiates? It is the Lord God. The Lord God initiates this covenant with His people, knowing full well what's going to happen. In chapter 32, not many chapters after this, when Moses is up on the mountain, what are they going to do? They're going to uh, make a golden calf, worship it, run around and do some really bad things as they party while Moses meets with God on the mountain. He knows fully well what's going to happen. This is planned from the beginning that he would have to send his son to fulfill the covenant promises that Israel made to their God in this text. They're going to say twice in this text, all that God has commanded, we will do. We're just like they were. We will obey. And then they get your order wrong. We will obey, and then your children frustrate you. We will obey, and then your spouse just makes you mad. We will obey, and then I stub my toe. Or we will obey, and then I'm holding a remote, and it's on something I shouldn't watch. We will obey, and then there's that substance I really want. Or you fill in the blank. But God is committed to His people. And this commitment to His people is mediated through blood. Through blood. You know, we talk about you know, signing a deal in blood. Well, this, this deal was actually was signed in blood. See, there's a worship service here. God calls His people to meet with Him on the mountain. Now, before, God had met with His people directly on the mountain when He gave them the Ten Commandments. And, and you know what the people said? We don't want that to happen again. It was too scary. So they told Moses, said, don't let God talk to us. You talk to God for us and let Him talk to you. And then you tell us what He says. It was too scary. He had thundered out of the mountain. And the mountain shook. And the people, they didn't like it. And so God calls His people to meet with Him here at the mountain. He calls them into a worship service. There is a call to worship here, just like we had a call to worship this morning. Moses is going to read to them uh, all that God had commanded him in chapters 20 through 23, the Ten Commandments and then the many uh, rules and regulations that come. And they say in verse 3, all, that the Lord, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. It was a responsive call to worship. You think our, worship is, our services might go a little long sometimes? This one was two days. So, so you going to give me two days? Probably not. The second day, Moses rises early and he, um, he is quick to build an altar. There's going to be blood today. And then he builds 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Having done so, he sends young men to make sacrifices. There are two types of sacrifices here. The burnt sacrifices, which, is, which were meant to, um, to atone for sin. And the second type was a peace offering. It's like a fellowship offering. In fact, uh, later, people are going to be eating this. It was, it was roasted. It was roasted. It was like on a spit. You know, it was something that you would fellowship together and eat together later. It was a fellowship meal. Now, it was there, he was very careful to what he did with the blood. Uh, 
half the blood he collected into basins and half the blood he flung upon the altar. This was a lot of blood. He collects it into basins because he's going to do something with it later. And so he reads them what he has now written down, the same thing they, read, they heard the day before. And again, God's people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. If you think about a wedding service, you know, there's several different stages. Like when I like to do a wedding service, you start down here and, you, and there's a declaration of intent, right? And then after the declaration of intent, then you come up here up onto the... I don't think I'm supposed to call it a stage. Uh, whatever this is, uh, the stage. You come up on the stage and, and then you're going to take your vows. And this is what's going on. This is a, like a wedding ceremony, wedding God to His people. What does He do? Well, He takes the blood... He takes the blood. And I want everybody to think about the clothes they're wearing today. Y'all are wearing nice clothes. Uh, what if I took blood and sprinkled it on all of you? How would you feel about that? Blood doesn't come out very easily. And in the days before cold water tide and shout, blood stayed on your clothes forever. And people back in these days, they didn't have a lot of clothes. And so these people were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. Moses took the blood from the basins and he spread it over everybody. Now whether this is the 70 elders representing God's people or all 2 to 3 million, I don't know. But all of a sudden there were people that were going to be walking around for a long time with blood all over their clothes. What a reminder that for the forgiveness of sins, there must be the shedding of blood. Amen. See, God wanted to enter into, his, into fellowship with His people. He had chosen these people. These were His people. They were precious to Him. But they could not be His people. They could not be in His presence unless something died. Do you see how we might get to Jesus on this one? One of the takeaways we have from this text is that salvation is through the shedding of blood. Something must die in order for you to live. Now in the Old Testament, the Old Testament system, which pointed to the day of, of the coming of the true Lamb of God, the, the one who we read in, in our call to worship, who would enter into the better tent, the one made without hands, not of this creation, not by the blood of goats and bulls, but rather of His own blood, that He would offer Himself that Lamb without spot or blemish. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the day of Christ's coming, and people in the Old Testament were saved by Christ's blood just like we are, yet they were under a time of tutelage, according to Galatians, a time of preparation. They had a teacher, and that was the law, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. Something had to die in order for their sins to be forgiven, and someone had to die in order for our sins to be forgiven. I was talking about this with our youth this morning. And this is, this is an amazing thing. It, it, it points us both to the seriousness of our sin and the amazing grace of God. It points us to the seriousness of sin, that the sin that I count as something, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. Or that wasn't my best. The sins that I take so lightly, God did not. They transgressed His law. They broke His word. And I have said, I will obey. 
And in order for my sins to be forgiven, the Savior of the world had to die. But it also points us to the amazing love and grace of God that He would do that. That He would look upon our state, that He would look upon our sinful selves, that He would look at all the ways we have run from Him, and He would say, I will do what you could not do. I will fulfill your side of the covenant treaty. You have said you will obey. You clearly haven't. I'm going to take care of that. And there will be blood spilt. Christ has taken the punishment for our transgressing of the covenant. He has taken upon Himself the payment for our sins so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. You know, when, when Moses sprinkled the blood on him, he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Does that trigger your mind anywhere? When we come to the Lord's... I wish we were taking the Lord's Supper today. It just points so clearly here. Christ in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where we have Paul's recording of the words institution, what does he say? He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This was a covenant... There's a better covenant, the new covenant that Christ instituted. Both covenants had to be instituted, started by, founded with blood. And where the blood of bulls and goats was a great start and it pointed to the coming of Christ, in Christ we have the fulfillment of those things. And as we feast upon Him in our hearts by thanks, um, as we feast upon Him in faith, with thanksgiving I should say, spiritually speaking, as we feast upon Him, this is the blood of of the new covenant. This is what it took for us to have a relationship with God. Well, there's a worship service at the bottom of the mountain, and there's another worship service that happens about halfway up the mountain. Um, So Moses, we see in verses 9 through 11, that Moses and the 70 elders representing all of Israel, along with Nadab and Abihu, the uh, the sons of, of, of Moses' brother Aaron, they go up and they meet with God, and something amazing happens in verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. They saw the God of Israel. Now this creates tension. Exodus thirty-three twenty. God tells Moses, For man shall not see me and live. In John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. So what do we do with this text? We don't know really exactly what they saw, but do you notice that the text says they saw God and then we have no description of God? It's like they came before God and could look no higher up than the bottom of His feet. Because the only description we have is the, is the pavement underneath him, which is like sapphire, and for its clearness is just like heaven. We don't know what they saw. Perhaps it was Christ. Perhaps it was a pre-incarnate Christ, like we see in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God upon the throne, sees the Lord high and exalted upon the throne. We don't know. There's tension there, but where there's not tension is that when Christ comes to earth to offer the better blood as the better Moses, as the better high priest, we see God. That when people walked along the road in Nazareth and later in Capernaum or saw Him hanging upon the cross, do you know who they saw? 
Yahweh, the God-man Jesus. And that all who look upon Him in faith will be covered by His bloody sacrifice and will be raised one day from the dead just as our Savior was. They come into the presence of God. And I love this. They eat and they drink. What are they eating and drinking? Well, they're, they're eating the, uh, the, the food that comes from the sacrifices. They've just sacrificed these peace offerings. They would have carted it up the mountain, and they would have eaten the, the, the food of the sacrifice. You know, when, uh, when major countries sign treaties, there's, you know, there's great pomp and ceremony. A lot of times, uh, people, the, the leader, heads of state, when they sign the, the treaties, they'll actually use a different pen for every letter. Did you know that? So that they can give those pens out as gifts. And then afterwards, there's a big party, and people sit down and eat. Why is that? Because suddenly they're at peace, and you eat with people with whom you are at peace. What's amazing here is that here are these, these elders, right, who will soon lead God's people astray in Exodus 32 in the golden calf. Uh, Aaron, at the very lead of them, they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf, is what he says. Isn't that amazing? You know, and here he is. These are the people that God is meeting with. These are the people with whom God is at peace with. It's not because they were good. It's because they were loved. They have been covered in the blood of the covenant. He did not reach out his hand and kill these chief men, but rather fellowshiped with them. You know, this points us to uh, certainly the Lord's Supper, where we feast with our Savior and feast upon our Savior. But it also points us to the day when Christ comes back and we get to celebrate and we get to feast together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is going to happen. We're going to sit with brothers and sisters from all generations of all centuries who have loved the Lord our God. And we're going to feast together, eating amazing food when Christ comes again and makes all things new. What they experienced was amazing. But it pales in comparison to what we experience at the Lord's table, which pales in comparison to what we will experience when Christ comes again and we sit with Him in heaven in fellowship with the Lord our God. When the last section in this text, Moses heads up the mountain. He heads up the mountain and he leaves Aaron and her in charge of Israel, which is going to be a huge mistake. Uh, he takes Joshua, his assistant. It's the first time he's called that, by the way, in Exodus. Uh, takes Joshua's assistant. It, it appears that Joshua doesn't go all the way up. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, he's going to stick around for about six days and wait for the Lord to call him into the full glory cloud. And we read in verses 17 through 18. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. God invites Moses into the devouring fire that symbolizes his presence on the mountain. And he's there for 40 days. So what are the takeaways today? First, God is committed to his people. And he's committed to you. Is there anything in your life right now that makes you wonder if God's committed to you? You know, the work that He began in you, Philippians 1, 6 says, He will complete it at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's holding tightly to you. Why do we know that? We know that because He has sent His Son to die. He has sent His Son to die and to spill His blood, to be sacrificed, to sacrifice Himself. 
For the joys set before Him, He endured the cross. Why? Because He loves you. God is committed to you because He has sent His Son to die for you. God is committed to you because God Himself came to this earth. And He laid aside the glory that was due Him in heaven. He became a servant. And He served to the point of death, even death on a cross. But there is coming a day in which God's commitment to you will be made manifest for all of creation. And all of our doubts will be cast away. Those days we wonder, God, where are you? All those things we cast aside when we finally see every knee bow and tongue confess. Under the earth and in heaven and on earth, everywhere around, all creation. And bow before Him, some willingly in faith. And some will be forced to bow and declare Him the Lord of all creation. The Lord and King that He is. And then we will no longer wonder that God is committed to us because we will see Him face to face. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your commitment to us. We certainly don't deserve it. We thank You for Your commitment to us and its love and grace and mercy. And we thank You for our Savior, through whose blood we have salvation. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, if you'll take a hymnal and we're...